This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. And so I want to give a special thank you to Robert Mullen and Susan Clark, who both just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so now let's get to our show. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 421 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today on the show, we'll be discussing video game movies and cartoons. And this is a follow-up to our panel on video game movies back in episode 415, so definitely check that out if you missed it. And this will involve spoilers for the movies Street Fighter, Assassin's Creed, Wreck-It Ralph, and Pixels, as well as season one of the cartoons Castlevania and to The Legend of Zelda. And I'm joined by three guests. So first up, we've got Erin Lindsay, making her 19th appearance on the show. She's the author of the Bloodbound series of epic fantasy novels, and the Nicholas Lenoir series of paranormal detective novels, which she writes under the name E.L. Tetensor. A Golden Grave, the latest novel in her Rose Gallagher series of historical mysteries, is out now. So, Erin, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. The next up, we've got Zach Chapman, making his fifth appearance on the show. His short fiction appears in Nature, Starship Sofa, Tales to Terrify, Steampunk Universe, and Writers of the Future. And he also edited the anthology Time Travel Tales, which includes stories by Catherine Wells, Sean Williams, and Robert Silverberg. So, Zach, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me back. And also joining us today is Blake J. Harris, making his fourth appearance on the show. He's the author of the nonfiction book The History of the Future, about virtual reality pioneer Palmer Luckey, and his video game history book Console Wars is currently being adapted for TV by Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg. His latest project is a biography of Larry David, creator of Curb Your Enthusiasm and co-creator of Seinfeld. So, Blake, welcome to the show. Good to be here. Thanks for having me back. Okay, and so these uh, movies and TV shows we're going to talk about are inspired by some video games such as Castlevania, Street Fighter, The Legend of Zelda, and Assassin's Creed. So I thought we'd just start out, and I'm just curious how uh, familiar everyone is with those games. So let's start off with Zach. Have you played uh, any of those games? Yeah, I'm pretty familiar with all of those games. Uh, I'm a big fan of Castlevania. I was introduced to those uh, on the Game Boy Advance. So um, not like the original series, but I've gone back and played those. They made some HD re-releases of those. Uh, I think it's like one through six or something like that. And those are all really good games, except for Simon's Quest, the second one. I can't recommend that one, but all of those other ones, they've aged really well, and uh, that's definitely worth picking up. And um, yeah, Zelda, of course. I played Zelda Street Fighter. I'm a big um, uh, fighting game fan. I really like Street Fighter. I I really like Mortal Kombat, um, and they're very, they're so different in their control schemes. Um, But yeah, I definitely dig all of those, all those games. Assassin's Creed, the second one, is a standout, um, but Ubisoft is kind of like a churn games out studio. I'm not, like, super in love with um, 
like the first one was very uh, like kind of fetch questy in an open world. Um, though there was like a lot of cool parkour stuff. The second one is where it like really got into, uh, like more of an interesting story. And, um, then the other ones, I kind of dropped off on those. Uh, the story gets like really convoluted and I'm not ever really sure what's going on. So why do you not like the second Castlevania game? And does it have anything to do with the random wall that you have to kneel in for five seconds in order to progress <laughs> where there are no hints that that's what you have to do? I, yeah, so I tried to beat it. I um, probably played like an hour or two into it, but it's just really like, even with guides, like it's tedious and there's a lot of backtracking. Like even if you know what you're supposed to do, you're immediately given like the whole um, you're given access to like the entire map, uh, all of the towns and, and all of the castles and stuff. And um, you're just like walking vast amounts of left to right and right to left and back and going through stuff just to get to the next, you know, item place. And then there's like the really archaic stuff like lean in while holding like an item and then a red tornado will come deposit you at another location. I- I'm okay with that because, you know, there's, there's now there's all these guides, um, which I guess you, you guys didn't have access to back then. But for me, yeah. It's a, <laughs> yeah. So it must've been re- unbelievably frustrating for you. But, but, well, they had like, forth. they had like guides, but they were actually printed on paper and you'd have to like wait for them to come in the mail with your <laughs> Nintendo power. Pa- subscription. Paper. Yeah. <laughs> um, but so how about Aaron uh, what sort of familiarity do you have with the, these games um, I've played them all it's interesting though uh, everything Zach just said explains a lot because the only Castlevania game I've ever played was Simon's Quest and I that was uh, you know I played <laughs> it when it first came out and didn't really enjoy it all that much um, the others I have fond memories of um, I consider myself an expert on the Legend of Zelda having lost just horrific numbers of hours of my life playing every single installment <laughs> of that series on multiple platforms. Um, and yeah, quite familiar with Assassin's Creed also. Um, I was really blown away with that, that first installment when it came out. Um, but I do find it similar to the Prince of Persia series in a lot of ways, um, including its inconsistency. So when you say you played all this, I don't even, I only played the first two on the NES. And there, how many, how many, like roughly is, is that that you've played? It, de- it depends on if you count all the Game Boy ones. Um, I, I don't even know that I could say off the top of my head, but it's got to be pushing, I don't know, somewhere between eight and 10 now. There's lots. Uh, I, I think it might be like 25 or something, right? <laughs> there's a lot, there's a lot of uh, handheld ones. <laughs> is it really that many? Yeah, I don't know. They, well, they they made like three handheld ones per handheld device. Right. Okay. So there's, so, yeah, you know, the, so there's the a lot ones I maybe, and I, and I don't have a switch, which is the, the, the stupidest thing, um, for, for somebody who enjoys Nintendo products as much as I do. Um, so I, yeah, I, I haven't, I've only played a couple of the, of the handheld ones, to be honest. I didn't realize that there were that many, but certainly the console games just, um, and I've played and replayed them to death. I mean, I kind of still feel after all this time that Ocarina of Time is like the greatest video game ever made. Mm-hmm. It is a hill I will die on. <laughs> I agree. 
It's so good. I I probably beat that game like as many times as any other game I've beat because it's so playable. Yeah, it, it's amazing. Well, let's get Blake in here too. Like, Blake, how many of these games have you played? Hey, uh, so, you know, kind of like an adult that reads at like a seventh grade level sort of a thing. Um, <laughs> I, I pretty much, I, I, it's a good bet I've played anything before like 1996, 97, and then almost for sure I haven't played anything since then. So I haven't played any Assassin's Creed games, though obviously I'm familiar with them from covering the industry and, you know, watching other people play. Um, and then my experiences with Zelda is, uh, a lot like Aaron described, you know, like, uh, even, even nowadays, since I do own a Switch, uh, you know, usually what I'll do after a day of writing to sort of just do my, you know, most enjoyable brainless thing is just play, um, Legend of Zelda over just repeatedly, you know, with stupid challenges, like try to do it without gaining any of the heart containers to see if I could beat it with three hearts or something like that, or, or play Mega Man. So, uh, you know, I'm very familiar with Zelda, very familiar with Castlevania, um, definitely Street Fighter was a big deal, both playing it at the arcade and on console at the time. Um, but I'll have to rely on you guys for Assassin's Creed canonical stuff <laughs> games, probably. Well, I've never played Assassin's Creed, and I've only played the NES, you know, the first two Castlevanias and the first two Legend of Zeldas. And I played a lot of Street Fighter 2 in the arcades. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm not as familiar with all the spin-off media and sequels and, and everything. Um but so um but so part of the reason I wanted to do this this follow-up panel is because at the end of our last video game panel, uh Blake was kind of saying, Oh, we didn't get to talk about Street Fighter. I wanted to talk about Street Fighter. And so uh <laughs> I figured, hey, why not just talk for another 90 minutes and then we can get and to And I can't Street wait Fighter. to hear why, Blake. I really can't. <laughs> well, if I knew this was gonna be the outcome, I don't know that I would have been so emphatic about it. because uh, of all the things we watched, it's probably the least interesting. Um, oh, <laughs> I, I disagree, man. I disagree. We'll get to it. Is that is that Zach? Because you think Street Fighter is interesting, or just everything else is super, super, super uninteresting? Um, Ooh, that's a good question. A little bit of both. <laughs> um, I I do find it interesting, and I'm interested in everyone's um, background with this movie because I watched it for the very first time um, last week. Um, yeah, so. Yeah, and so it was just like it was really cool to watch. It was really exciting for me. Like, um, well, and also if I recall correctly, I feel like part of why I had wanted to talk about it was because I felt like it was the uh, the version that I would like more than Mortal Kombat. I don't know whether it was a better movie, but it was like the same sort, of, somewhat of a similar conceit. Obviously, it's a fighting game, but like it was kind of the way I would want to tell the story or how I used to enjoy it. That's that sort of story being told. So, and you were a big fan of the Mortal Kombat movie, Zach. How, how did you feel like it was in comparison to the movie? Well, I really wish that I had seen this as, uh, you know, as a child. But um, I still got a lot of enjoyment out of watching it as an adult. Um, it's it's really similar to um, to Mortal Kombat in some ways, but also it's like it feels like it has less than half the budget. And, you know, there, there's like some aspects of it that are like party city vibes, like with a lot of the costumes and a lot of the sets, <laughs> um, like there, there's like a mutagen bag where they're creating Blanca and it just looks like something that you'd buy at a party city for $5, but 
wait, it's wait, really wait. good. Let, let me talk about Zach about my fundamental problem with this movie is that it's mm-hmm. called Street Fighter and it's based on a video game where it's you know one on one hand to hand combat in the streets and that's not what this movie is about at all. You're not wrong. <laughs> I can't. Def- I cannot defend this movie as being a good movie or or respectful of the source material. But mm-hmm. I, I really enjoyed it, and I like want to watch it again. I want to watch it. I I had planned to watch it with friends, but that ended up <laughs> falling through. And I really now want to like when all this stuff is over, get a big group of friends and watch it because this is the exact kind of movie that I like to have on while, while people talk over it and you're all laughing. I mean, there's like genuine, like funny moments where, um, that I, I don't know. It's just, it's no, 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 totally. Th- there's I'll, good lines. I'll, 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 totally, I'll totally give you that. Uh, there are funny moments. Um, but so Blake, see, the, okay. So the thing with mortal Kombat was, the setup is we we said it's like a ripoff of uh, Rise of the or Enter the Dragon, where right, right. where you they, everyone go to the islands and they have these like one on one fights to the death. So it's sort of like the game, but um, well, and, and for listeners who aren't super familiar with the movie, though you probably remember it or remember the idea, it's like like kind of I feel like let me back up a second and say I feel like a theme with the stuff we're going to talk about today is especially when it comes to Castlevania is I, I'm realizing that I really like it better when the films or television shows stray from the source material, but, you know, they feel spiritually related, so they don't feel like it's just an FU to the source material. But I, I like that it wasn't just a fighting tournament, because I feel like I'd seen that by playing the game. I like that this was more of like an A-team sort of vibe, or, or even like an Ocean's Eleven, like, putting together this group of everyone with their own special talents. And, it, you know, that is obviously different than what the game is, but I felt like that was a more interesting story. And it was also at the time of seeing it, it was nice to see like Jean-Claude Van Damme and more of, I mean, more of a story. I don't know how much of a story this is, but it felt so like, it, did you see yeah. this as a kid? Yeah. And I guess that's part of why I hedged a little bit on suggesting that we talk about it. Cause I, I feel like, uh, a big part of why I have such fond memories and have such a high opinion of it has to be because, like, my dad took me without my brother as, like, a special treat to the movie. And I, that probably is going to cloud my enjoyment and make me remember it very fondly. But I, I, I think very highly of the movie, and I really enjoyed it at the time. So, Aaron. Well, wait, I, I get, agree with you. <laughs> I want to get Aaron. Aaron, what are your thoughts on Street Fighter? Um, I think... Generally, what I would say is that where Mortal Kombat is like a shit typhoon, this is like a shit hurricane. It's just, it's, it's a, it's just like, ah, uh, I can't, I kind of can't even. So here's the, here's the thing with it. I actually liked it better than wait, Mortal wait, Kombat. What's, sorry, what's, what's the difference between, for the, for, for our listeners who may <laughs> yeah. not know, what's the difference between a typhoon and a hurricane? Uh, that is kind of my point. It's there, there's like, there is a difference, but it's hard to say what it is. Um, (laughs) it's, they, they were similar in the sense that I think that they were both, and I, I understand creatively speaking why you would make this choice. They were both kind of leaning into the cheesiness of it. Um, there was not really much of an attempt to, to, portray this as a serious film and I appreciated that and I think it's the right call but I think the problem with Street Fighter was they didn't lean in hard enough there were some very Austin Powers moments um, for sure and those were the moments that I found myself appreciating the most is where they just kind of 
really kind of deliberately went into that. But unfortunately, I, I think that it suffered from not really committing to that tack. Um, I think it predates Austin Powers, doesn't it? No, oh, it doesn't. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, yeah. Does it? Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, sure. um, yeah. But you, you understand the vibe that I'm like, the, there's some definite, um, you know, you, you get some elements of old Star Trek. You definitely get some homage to old James Bond. Um, a lot of that, that same stuff that informs the Austin Powers, especially the costumes, like, oh my God, uh, <laughs> the, the, the bad guy's costume is like this wonderful amalgam of stormtroopers and Michael Jackson's thriller that I can't, I just can't <laughs> even like, it's so beautiful. And I just kind of wish that they had gone a little bit further with that almost. Instead, you have these moments that almost try to pass themselves off as legitimate action movie, which just kind of ruined. It became a neither fish nor fowl thing for me, and it was too bad. Um, also, I mean, just my own personal bias. I struggle a lot with movies that portray UN peacekeeping. It's a little too close to home, and I know they weren't trying to do it <laughs> realistically, but just... <sighs> I just think there are few professions that get portrayed on screen so often with such little fidelity to what actually happens, you know, like it's kind <laughs> of, it kind of makes me wonder what you all think is going on out there. <laughs> but anyway. So, so what did you think of Jean-Claude Van Damme's speech where he's like, we could go, you know, we could go home, but I'm not going to go home. I'm going to kick his ass so bad. It's going <laughs> to hurt the next guy who tries to be general bison or something. I think that's a valuable diplomatic lesson. I also think that honestly, no shit, that is probably the most realistic UN moment is when the dipshit from New York shows up to be like, <laughs> you can't do this. And they're like, but wait, isn't that why we spent all the money and sent all this here? And they're like, yeah, but you can't do it. That, that's like I, I, the most I, realistic part. I, I like your uh, analysis, Aaron. I think one interesting thing as I think back on this and my personal experience is uh, in terms of you're describing it as neither feast nor foul, I, I feel like that maybe isn't true because it's a kid's movie, right? Essentially. And like, as a kid, I bought, I, I wouldn't have gotten like the meta commentary or necessarily the humor of an Austin Powers. Like to me, I, maybe I was just foolish, but like I bought this as like, okay, this is like, okay. Like, but, but even if you're yeah. a kid, you're is not like, really there's too many movie? characters in this movie. Like even I feel like even as an eight year old, I'd be like, there is at least six too many characters in this movie. <laughs> totally agree, but it had. I mean, it was like one of those situations where you have Jean Claude Van Damme. I know him from other movies, so like I, he's my like you know central point that everything tethers to. So even if I miss the other stuff, like I'm like, all right, I, I understand what Guile's doing. I understand we got this guy. But uh, right. uh, yes, I, if I were um, reading the script, I would have suggested cutting some of the characters. But like to talk about Jean-Claude Van Damme, you have Jean-Claude Van Damme who you, who you've hired uh, implausibly as, as an American <laughs> to, 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 to be the guy whose special move is the super kicks. You, you have, <laughs> you have a kickboxer, you have the super kicks and yet you have the most ridiculous fight scenes. Like what a waste. This is like hiring Benedict Cumberbatch to play Smog and then running his voice through a, through a distorted. It's just like, well, what, what is the point of hiring That's this person analogy. for this role, and then totally ruining the thing that made you hire him? So, like, why why couldn't we have actually seen Jean Claude Van Damme? Well, because he was fighting Raul Julia. That's why. <laughs> I will I will say though, that the, the one part where this movie came alive for me was that fight between Jean Claude Van Damme and Raul Julia, where it's finally it's like a one on one martial arts fight and like okay this is like street fighter this is what i came for and they're actually doing the moves from the game uh that i was like man if there was more of this i would have really liked this movie more but i mean I, we have to mention that 
uh, Raul Julia is like totally awesome in this movie. He's like better in my yep. opinion. He's better than everything else in the movie put together. Um, was this his final of movie? Course. Yeah, it it was. Yeah, it was. Okay. It was, okay. which is, was I, I feel, yeah. I feel bad about that because I mean, he's just, he was such a, just such a lion and he did so many amazing roles. And for this to be his swan song is a little unfortunate, <laughs> but, but he seemed to understand, like he just, he just leaned into it so hard. He was like, well, I am in red pleather and <laughs> I have, you know, epaulettes and a, a Nazi hat. So let's do this. <laughs> and he did it. I want to get Zach back in here. Zach, what did you think of uh, M. Bison? Well, he's likable. It's weird. He's supposed to be this bad guy, but then you're kind of like, well, maybe maybe he should have his own country. Because <laughs> um, he, he's just so fun to watch, and he's so charismatic. And um, especially compared to Jean-Claude Van Damme, who is ADR'd the entire time. Um, <laughs> I, it, most of the uh, voice acting is ADR'd. At least it seemed like it was. Who thought it was a good idea to hire Kylie Minogue for this? <laughs> Wait, I want to. I want to mention before we move on that I did really like that that M Bison wants to establish his Bisonopolis and uh, exert the Pax Bisonica over the Earth. I like the Bison Bucks. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Those were awesome. I think another thing too that I'm now remembering, not as someone who recently watched it, but as a kid, and as goes to Zach's point, is you know when we're a kid, or especially how uh, you know more black and white. I felt like the hero and villain storytelling was back in the 80s and 90s in in most mainstream uh, action stories like this. Like you know, you have the bad guy like Goro, and it's just oh, he's a bad guy. You know, like. What does he even really want? Doesn't make sense. But because it was Raul Julia, because he put on such a good performance, because I think a lot of people knew that he was sick or had died, I felt like especially sympathetic to him, which was just a nice, you know, a complex emotion that worked really well as a, what I must have been like an 11 year old kid, sort of like sympathizing with the bad guy to some extent. So, very anecdotal experience. But Wait, I, I also others. I, I want to read this line too. So, um, Chun Li talks about how he, he she's going to kill him because he killed her father or something. And he says to her, for you, the day Bison graced your village was the most important day of your life. For me, it was Tuesday. Amazing. <laughs> That's some good stuff there. Does everyone know where the name M. Bison comes from? I don't know if this is no. so widely known. No. There was something with Vega versus M. Bison or something like that? No, no, that? It's, it's Balrog. So, so, so they, oh, Balrog. Okay. They, they had done – so, so um, Balrog, who's a boxer – was originally named M. Bison, and it was a takeoff on Mike Tyson. And then M. Bison was Balrog, which is like a demon. And so he's like this, like, you know, like kind of Nazi guy with superpowers, right? And then, like, at some stage, they were, like, afraid that they would get sued by Mike Tyson because it looked just like him and it had a name that was so similar to his. But they'd already done all the graphics and everything, so they just switched those two names. Interesting. Yeah, he's a, that character is actually in the movie. He's he's the boxer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Balrog. Yeah. No, I think every character, <laughs> any character you could think of, is is probably in this movie somewhere. <laughs> I, I, I would say the biggest disappointment is the fight scenes because I can be accepting of everything else. It's so to me the cheesiness factor. Like I, I felt like it was a self aware movie. I felt like it knew what it was doing and most of the actors were on board. 
but the editing and the fighting was a bit nonsensical. Um, I would not compare it favorably to Mortal Kombat, where in Mortal Kombat you can tell who is punching who and <laughs> what is going on, but aside from maybe a, just a couple of scenes, it's it's pretty nonsensical, the fighting. Yeah, well, actually, Zach, you know, I was watching a YouTube video about this this morning, and apparently, you know, usually how they do these sorts of movies is that they film all the character stuff first, and then they're working on the choreography and everything for the big fights and set pieces and things, and then they do all that afterwards. But because Raul Julia was so sick, he was really, really frail, and so they needed time to for him to, like, recover so that he looked more he healthy for the close-up shots. So they swapped it, and they did all the action stuff first without doing any choreography or uh, rehearsals or anything. Wow. So a lot of the fight scenes were just, like, literally Jean-Claude Van Damme was just, like, improvising fight scenes on the spot and stuff like that. That makes sense, because I want to say there's a couple of shots of him kind of doing flips by himself <laughs> for not really any reason. <laughs> uh, I mean, so, Aaron, you, you mentioned Kylie Minogue is in this movie. Uh, I did not actually know she acted. I actually went and looked up. She's like, appears in like a movie like once a year or something. I, I'd never, I don't remember ever oh, really? seeing her in anything before. Yeah, I don't remember seeing her in anything else either. Um, but yeah, I, I didn't understand why she was in the movie. I mean, she was fine. I also didn't understand why, um, why she was a Brit, because she's clearly not a Brit. <laughs> doesn't sound like a Brit. I'm like, no one really cares about nationality in this movie. It's fine. Like, what difference <laughs> does it make what, what flag patch you have sewn on your shoulder? But whatever, it's fine. So I think it sounds like we can all agree this movie is flawless, but I was going to point <laughs> out one one thing I would have changed. I think the movie should have been called Street Fighter Tale, which would have been, <laughs> you know, more of a uh, direct homage to the game, and also it would have been as confusing as the game, because it always seemed like there was never a Street Fighter 1, which I think <laughs> there was, but not really in like a popular way. So I feel like that would have just been a cool thing, and sort of like the era you were describing earlier, Aaron, where we all had to walk two miles in the snow to get information about these games. Like I feel like there could be, it would be a good era for mythology and conspiracy theories, where we would have thought that there was some Street Fighter one that we didn't know existed, and we'd be looking for it. So they should have just. Yeah, actually, it Street I really like that idea because yeah, I, I I don't I know very little about the Street Fighter one game, but I don't think it has almost any of the like well known. No, I think it has no, just, it's like, definitely based on Street Fighter two. This movie. it's super yeah. basic. Yeah. Um. All right. Any final thoughts on Street Fighter before we move on? Nope. All right, Assassin's Creed. Um, yeah, someone's going to have to explain to me what this movie was about, honestly. Uh, so, <laughs> like, basic from what I gathered, I mean, and this, I'll, I'll, I guess I'll just say it looks like, like, I, I didn't I didn't have time to really to look up anything about this movie, but just watching it, what I imagine is that they had made a shitload of money from the games, and this was like a, um, basically a vanity project for Ubisoft. <laughs> Or, like, to try to get prestige or something. Because, like, the cast is unbelievable. It's, like, the greatest actors of their generation. Michael Fassbender, Jeremy Irons, Marianne Cotillard, Charlotte Rampling, and Brendan Gleeson. Uh, all totally wasted in this movie. Um, and it, look, it like looks like they spent a lot of money on it, but it's more or less completely incoherent. Um, does anyone want to hazard a... Um, especially anyone who's pl played the game, want to hazard an explanation for what, what the plot of this movie is? Zach, Zach, did you play, um, you played the game, right? 
Yeah, so the the game's pretty convoluted too, and the one that I played most it has kind of a different story. But the basic concept is um, there is a guy, and he gets put into this thing called the Animus, I think, yeah. and it reads genetic memories of his great grandfather's, but not grandmother's, and um, they were assassins, and um, the assassins are the good guys, and they're like assassinating bad leaders that are a part of this bigger order called the Knights Templar. And uh, I think a big part of the first game is that the twist is that you're, you're an assassin, right? But you're working for the Templars. And then at the end of the game, there's the, the break very similar to this movie. Um, but uh Yeah. So, wait, so wait, the, wait, let me just stop you on the genetic memory thing. So the idea is that somehow your the memories are like encode the data of your memories is encoded in your genes somehow. Yes. Yes. That's, yeah. That's the general idea. Okay. And it's not as far fetched as it sounds. I have to say. Um, uh, it, it sounds it, pretty it, well because the way it like initially it makes it, it almost made it seem like um you know that they needed the genetic code to get a match in history but what they're actually matching is sort of the brave uh the sorry the brain wave uh vibrations or something and that actually kind of made more sense but then they started making it sound like your memories were coded in your genes which like you know down to every punch in a fight you were that, that your ancestor was in that seems completely r- ridiculous to me um but well, i thought if they well, that, if they just used the word if they just yeah. used the word quantum mechanics it would have <laughs> solved everything <laughs> Um, but sorry, Aaron, go ahead. What were you saying? I mean, I wasn't saying anything particular. I just that it's, um, you know, it's not as far-fetched as all that in that the echoes of those memories can be carried epigenetically, um, and that is passed down, although research suggests that it seems to be passed down more on the mother's side than on the father's side, but that's just in brackets. It's still obviously a, a far-fetched science, science fiction idea. Um, I think... Uh, you can get past the sort of central conceit of it. Um, and the, the, the story from the original game is actually pretty cool. And to your point, Dave, uh, about maybe why this got made, I think maybe that factors into it to some degree, you know, the same reason they made Prince of Persia Sands of Time, because as game stories went, as game narratives went, um, that was, that was a good one. Um, but I think, the the problem with uh, this game was, or this movie rather, was similar to the problem, I think, with Prince of Persia Sands of Time, which is that there's kind of only a glancing effort to um, adhere to the original story. And, and in some ways, what you would expect is that a movie takes a simplistic game narrative and improves it. But what so often seems to be happening with these movies is that they take what is a relatively straightforward but but coherent narrative and then they just mess with it until it becomes incoherent. And I think that's really what happened in this movie. Um, the plot of the original Assassin's Creed is relatively straightforward, if far-fetched. Um, but the, the other thing I think that they did wrong is that, um, I don't know about you, Zach, but I found that when you played the game, the parts that were least interesting by far were the moments where you come out of the Animus and you're Desmond again. And I always Absolutely. wanted to just fast forward those. Like, I don't care. Just, I, I know, think I just in later games, care. I think in later games, that was actually an option. I'm, I could be wrong, but I think there's an actual option to where you can turn that feature off 
And it's oh, just man. like the one, f- the one in Egypt, you're Desmond like half the time. And I'm like, I don't care about Desmond. Um, and, the, and the, yeah. And the, you know, the, all the, the knockoff characters that he, that he runs around with. Um, and, and that, I think they kind of amplify that mistake in the movie because we spend a lot of time outside the animus giving Michael Fassbender's character unnecessary backstory. And when I say unnecessary, it's because kind of the whole conceit of the original Assassin's Creed was Desmond is nobody. He's just, he's just a rando. And then he goes in the animus and he realizes that his ancestors were extraordinary. But then you get Michael Fassbender's backstory coming into it and it's all very traumatic and weird and his parents were assassins and blah, blah. And it just kind of junks up that kind of um, every man turns out to be extraordinary type of basic conceit that was <laughs> yeah. part of that original one. Yeah. Let, let me just explain in case this isn't clear if people haven't seen the movie. So we're cutting back and forth between this futuristic lab and then the 1400s where the characters are, we're trying to find out what happens to the, the apple of Eden, you know, which is the, the apple that Eve, you know, ate in the garden of Eden. And, um, this, um, uh, now I'm getting confused. There's the Templars and, oh, and then there's this corporation, Agresta or something like that. Abstergo. Abstergo. I mean, that's what it is in the game. I think it, I think in movies yeah, it's called Abstergo. Yeah. So, so they're trying to get the apple because somehow they think that if, some, somehow they think if they get it, it's going to enable them to eliminate free will from the world and um, you know, things will be more placid and controlled. It, uh, it's the anti-life equation from the DCU. It's like literally that exact same thing. Is is that the case in the game too, where that's the the function of that apple? Um, I don't remember, honestly. It's definitely the MacGuffin from the game, but I, I don't really remember, and, and I remember that it confers a lot of power. But the nature of its power, I don't remember. All right, so Blake, as someone who had never played Assassin's Creed, did you understand what was going on in this movie at all? <laughs> well, I mean, not really. I, I, I'm still pretty familiar with the game because I have watched a lot on Twitch and all that. But, like, uh, for me, um, like, it, I, uh, it came back to really early problems with the story um, that really, I felt like, got it off the rails to start. One was what you were describing, like the cross-cutting between the 1400s and present day, which I felt like was just not necessary. Like, I feel like, I guess they felt like there would be a payoff to that. But I felt like, let's just keep it from a single POV as we're getting our footing in this kind of confusing, hard to believe, but we'll go with it world. And then the second was just Michael Fassbender, who's an incredible actor, but he's not, um, I don't think he's instantly likable. Like, I think that was something that happened in Steve Jobs that made it difficult. So I don't know. I felt like he wasn't the right guy. I think that his confusing backstory didn't have to be part of it. Um, I felt like there was a lot that could have been done in the first act to just get this train on the right tracks, even if it wasn't going to be a great movie, but at least one that was easier to follow and that you felt like you understood what people wanted and where everyone was going. Absolutely, yeah, I absolutely felt like I had no emotional investment in any of these characters whatsoever. No, exactly. And yeah. like, but, it, but the movie, like on a superficial level, kind of looks like it could be a good movie. Like, I feel like if you walked through the room and just, you know, as someone was watching it and just watched like two seconds of it, you might be like, oh, this kind of looks like a good movie. But if you paused for like three or four seconds, 
the whole thing would the kind of illusion would fall apart. But it really and, and I think it's important. Like my perception, my memory. You guys can correct me if I'm wrong or if you had different experiences. But like I felt like this was what you described. But like this was going to be the first vi- good video game movie after all these years and decades of bad video game movies. This has like great actors in it, and and like uh, you know, is it based on a game that actually has an interesting, unique mythology? And like this was supposed to be the game that. Sorry, this was supposed to be the movie that showed like movies about games could like win Academy Awards and be like taken seriously as a movie, <laughs> and that was particularly disappointing. No, that, that but, didn't happen. But my overwhelming impression of this movie is it's like you fed all of Christopher Nolan's movies into an AI program <laughs> and like, spit out, you know, like that's what they're obviously. They're, this is obviously supposed to look like a Christopher Nolan movie, but it's just like it's almost impossible to believe that humans were involved in making this because it's like so disconnected from basic like sense-making or emotional connection in any way. I didn't like it very much. Yeah. No, and I think so much of it goes back to the start, because, like, there's, st- there's a lot of stuff in Mission Impossible, whether it's the stunts or the, you know, the heists or the actual plots that are kind of, like, over your head or feel or seem unrealistic or even feel just like a MacGuffin. But, like, I feel like because Ethan Hunt was grounded enough that you got a sense of, like, what he's all about, and he did feel more like, not an everyman, but, like, I, I understood what he was all about and I had no and I just couldn't feel that way about Michael Fassbender here and so that just threw me off from the start. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. It's for me, I think of all of these movies, it was the hardest to finish. Yeah. It's hard to watch. And even the the action scenes, like when it goes back in time, they're so cloudy. There's so much dust. Like I, I, it's supposed to be, I guess, like an artistic choice, <laughs> but it looks like draw distance issues or something because there's just dust in every scene and you, you can't make out any of the architecture or, I mean, that was like the huge thing about the original games, right? It was like an art history lesson. <laughs> I mean, it, re- it really was. And in this movie, it's just, you can't even see it. It's not artistic in any way. Uh, or representative of the the time periods that it's supposed to take place in in any way. Also, the the cuts are so quick, and the bad guys and good guys all look the same. I mean, they're all basically dressed in black robes. It's like all just almost impossible to follow just what's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, even at just the basic level of like, oh, there's some action. It's like total total flop as far as I'm concerned. I will say that one thing that struck me as potentially problematic for them, and it's clear that Ubisoft, uh, when they were making the games, felt that this was potentially problematic for them. The central narrative um, that they based that original game on is quasi-historical, but it's awkward because it pits the assassins, um, which are a, a Middle Eastern group, against the Templars. Um, the Knights Templar, which is obviously a Christian group. Um, and so it was clear that Ubisoft felt that this was a potential minefield and that they had to manage it very carefully. And I wonder if when they, when it came time to make the movie, they felt that it was just going to be more trouble than it was worth to adhere to that central narrative because of all the potential pitfalls of managing it sensitively. And so they decided to just kind of junk it up with a bunch of other stuff in order to avoid that basic uh, crusade kind of attitude or crusade kind of narrative that sort of under reverse crusade er, uh, uh, narrative that underpins the games. I don't know if that makes sense. 
Yeah, well, I think it does. I, I I hadn't thought of that, but having heard you say that, I I have to. I, I'd be surprised if Ubisoft wasn't concerned about that. So I think that's a pretty good point. <laughs> I guess the, the last point I want to make about Assassin's Creed is that I don't know if anyone here saw Devs, the new Alex Garland show on Hulu, but like this looks a lot like Devs, and some of the ideas are really similar in terms of free will and sort of like using technology to view the past and stuff. And I, I seriously wonder if Alex, because I know Alex Garland is really into video games, I really wonder if he watched this and was like, this sucks. But like you could make this good, <laughs> you know. There's like a couple of things here that you could make good, and that that, that was uh, that influenced devs in some. I mean, I don't know. I'm, that's just total speculation. But there's like enough like weird similarities between the two things that it did. It did make me wonder that. Could be, but I will say that uh, that of the two sort of of all the video game properties that we've watched, um, the the two that I found the most disappointing were both the Ubisoft properties, the Prince of Persia and Assassin's Creed. Um, not The Prince of Persia Sands of Time also happens to be one of my favorite games of all time, but it wasn't really so much that. It was just, it felt like all the pieces were there and it was, it was just, it should have been turnkey for them. And they totally screwed it up both times. And that was really disappointing. Like I remember thinking Sands of Time um, when that was coming out, I was excited because I remember thinking when I was playing that game, this game feels, and it was the first time I really recall consciously thinking of it in these terms, this game feels like a playable movie. The score is great. It's beautiful. It's graceful. The story is good. It is well acted, which was pretty unusual at the time. Um, and it should have been turnkey. And I feel like that with, with Assassin's Creed as well, that, that, that all the building blocks were there and all you had to do was, you know, follow your Ikea instructions and that sh- you should have had a good movie. Uh, Zach, any last thought on Assassin's Creed? No. <laughs> um, I really dislike this. Um, it was extremely difficult to get through. It's ugly to watch. Um, fight scenes are trash. Uh, the acting's good, but I'm not going to watch a sci-fi video game movie for the acting. Um, and the characters are unlikable, and there's no emotion. Um, I, I know that Ubisoft is working on a new TV show for Apple TV. It's, it's like a feast, banquets feast for ravens or something like that. It's by Rob Mickelhenny, and it's about game development. So hopefully they get it right there. It's, a, it's like a comedy. Wait, isn't that already out? Yeah, but I, yeah, I haven't subscribed to it, but I've, I've heard that it's good and I really like Rob McElhenney. So, and he's like writer creator. Um, so hopefully Ubisoft take, like takes inspiration from that and applies it to their games and then their future movies based off games. All right. So let's have a little palate cleanser here with something truly epically awesome which is the Legend of Zelda cartoon from the 80s. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, All right, who's going to do it? Who's going to say it? I, I, uh, I, I can't even tell you how much I love this cartoon as a kid. So there was this show called the Super Mario Brothers Super Show, and that was total false advertising. It was not a super show at all. But, the, <laughs> but every Friday they would have a Legend of Zelda cartoon and those were amazing. And I used to tape, I like taped them all on my uh, VHS tapes and I just watch them over and over again. And um, I can remember in particular, um, my friend Ross, I think, was over at my house and I was just like watching the scene over and over again where Link like 
backflips onto the dragon's back and then like shoots the bolts into the bounces them off the plate and destroys the dragon. And I was just watching it over and over again. And finally, my friend was like, why do you like this so much? <laughs> but yeah, it seems Dave, pretty, why do you like this so it much? It seems pretty self-evident to me. Um, I mean, I could go on and on about what's... No, the, I know why it's self-evident. Because yeah. now as an adult, you realize that all it is is just a big game of capture the flag. And you have to get both triangles. <laughs> so that's what the, it's just a big game of that. Wait, so, Blake, this seems like something... Did you watch? Did you watch this as a kid? Yes, and I did love it as a kid, but I also love the Super Mario Brothers Super Show. Um, so don't take my childhood tastes. <laughs> uh, uh, they were not very sophisticated. Yeah, I really enjoyed it as a kid. Uh, I not as much as the you know the Mario cartoons. So I guess I didn't. I was I certainly wasn't recording it um, and watching it as an adult. My first thought was. Unrelated to this specific cartoon, specific cartoon, it was wow. Having the monkey in Aladdin was so critical to making me like Aladdin because personality-wise, I felt like Aladdin was kind of similar to Link, but because there was nothing that showed me that Link was like loyal to anyone or actually cared about and treated other people like family or respectfully or did things for <laughs> what I would call the right reasons, I was like, oh, this guy's just like a smug jerk. Whereas Aladdin, I was like, oh, you know, he takes care of his brother in arms his monkey and then his genie so right, that we, was my first all right, before you guys all start trashing this show let me <laughs> list, list some of the things about it that are amazing uh the music is fantastic the sound effects are fantastic because they're all from the game and it just and like makes, and it just makes you like <laughs> by the way i'm just gonna cut it and say these are all the things that liz lemon says that she says to jenna after a bad show she's like the sound was fantastic the lighting was fantastic How was wait, I'm not, I'm, oh, great crew great wait crew. i'm not i'm not done um <laughs> although i'm, I'm actually you are, I, might, I might actually be done actually let me think wait um I think oh, that's I, the sum total of merits of this show I, no, no. The fact that the monsters are all actually the monsters from the game, and they look like the monsters from the game, and they behave like the monsters from the game. Because so many of the things, it's like the like Super Mario Brothers movie or something, where they're like, we should just make this cyberpunk. Where it's like with this this cartoon, they actually made it. Like, and the fact that the um, you know, the the items you take them and they like shrink down and you put them inside your bag and it makes the sound like all this. I don't know. It just like reminds that me. That was so cool. That was cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I like the fact that the episodes are short, you know, they don't overstay their welcome, you're, you know, and they're funny, and you're like in and out. Uh, so yeah, I guess, uh, I don't know. Those are some of the things I liked about the show. Uh, so, uh, I have, so, I've got one good thing. All right. Yeah, go, go ahead. It's the, the first, possibly the first ever depiction of a rocket jump. Um, but he, he used like some kind of grenade. So that was kind of cool. Oh, that's sorry. That's another thing. I think the action scenes are actually really well choreographed. And unlike fucking Assassin's Creed, you can actually tell exactly what's going on. And it's kind of like exciting and clever. And, you know, I don't know. I I just like as a kid, I just like wanted to inhabit this world where you got the, the sword that shoots the laser bolts. And there's just something appealing about this uh, this world to me. Um, I, I, that's a really good point because I, I I would have felt the same way. Like if I could have put touched my hand through the television screen, I would like want to be in there, which is unusual for a show that is actually like a story I don't like with characters I don't like. But I did like <laughs> Hyrule, and I did like felt like there was fidelity to the game, and it made it bigger to me, and I wanted to be there. So I like that point. All right, so Aaron, you can come in now and crush all my dreams. <laughs> <laughs> I mean. 
you're not wrong about the sound effects. The sound effects are badass. They're straight out of the game. Um, and I think overall, it was really clever. I mean, a lot of the things that you like about it are things that, that are straight from the game. So they're, they're not like original wins, I would say. But they, they were clever in the way that they adapted it. Um, because it's not necessarily obvious if you're starting with a blank slate. Okay, you've got a guy with a sword. And no matter how cartoony you make the villains... How do you dispatch them with a sword in a way that isn't a little bit too gory or scary for kids? Um, and using that fully charged up sword beam option was smart. I think they made a lot of smart choices there. Um, they also made a lot of incredibly stupid choices. Wait, actually, let me just explain that because that's actually really good too. Yeah. So when Link, like, he zaps the bad guys with his, like, um, sword bolts and then the bad guys, they don't get killed. They kind of get teleported back to the bad guy's home base. So it's, yeah, it's kind of like, it's not violent. And there's yeah. loot. They and drop loot. loot. Yeah. <laughs> there's loot and they react, the characters uh, react to loot much the way that you would react in real life if if loot were a real thing. You know, you're like, oh, cool, blow. Like maybe how you react as the gamer as opposed to how the, the characters on screen react when you're playing <laughs> the game. Um, so, so yeah, you know, that's, that's good. Um, I, I just, I couldn't get around, I couldn't get around how just incredibly artistically unlikable Link is. Like Thank he, you. <laughs> he is just a, just a perfect example of a total douchebag from start to finish. And I, and I don't really understand it. He like, aside from just being like insanely misogynistic, he literally catcalls the princess at the 59 second mark. Of wait, the wait. whole show. Wait, wait, let me, I got the line. He says, okay, so she's on a um, balcony and he's on a higher up balcony. And he whistles and says, looking good, princess, especially from this angle. Yeah. He, he talks about the only thing he likes. First of all, he whines. It's a whine monologue. It's like, hi, I'm Link. I'm about to whine for the next 10 minutes about how life in Hyrule is so boring. <laughs> and he literally sounds like that. Um, and then, yeah, it's, he's like, except for the view. And it's, you know, Princess Zelda in her negligee or whatever. And he's on an elevated balcony. So just to explain the <laughs> angle that he's so enamored with, looking down at her negligee. And I'm like, are you, are you kidding me? <laughs> I don't care how old this show is. But even if, even if I could get past like the rampant misogyny. And by the way, just about every episode, he makes a totally unwanted pass at her. Well, that's his sole motivation. Exactly. I think it's to get right. every episode. He's like, have a kiss? No. And well, excuse me, princess. And he says that <laughs> he four does. or and five just, times every episode. Just like that. And it's never funny. And that's the thing. It's like, <laughs> I, I can... There, there are two problems with this. One is it's so far removed from the character of Link in the games that mm -hmm. it's hard to get your head around. It, it, it would be like, it's, it's like, it's like Superman on red kryptonite. It's like, what the fuck just happened? <laughs> and, okay, but, and so but this, you, this came out after the adventure of Link. So there like was no character of Link in the game because he doesn't talk or like, no, but like, if you, if you just look at Link and I know that it was based on the limitations of like making sprites back then, but like, I feel like he's a, he was always like, he was so like, I just feel like he was blushing all the pure, time. Yeah, he was cute, cute and, and, and like, blonde, he, he would blonde. never try to kiss someone, let alone against their will. He, he's, he's the guy who gets a kiss totally. on the cheek and then he blushes like, oh, exactly. And he's, and he's blonde and it's like, let's go with dark link. And I, you know, so, so that's a stupid choice to begin with, in my opinion. But then, okay, if you're going to go that route, then at least make him the charming rogue, the Han Solo. But he's not. 
he's just super annoying from start to finish. So, you know, I, I just, there were no redeeming qualities to link whatsoever. Well, but we talked to, I mean, Aaron and I sort of talked about this a little bit on email, but I think that like this character was 100% based on Han Solo in Empire Strikes Back and they didn't get the charm, but that's like, it seems completely obvious to me that that's what they were thinking. I would disagree. I, no, I agree. He, he, Han Solo kind of sucks in that movie. He is so fucking whiny in Empire Strikes Back. He's just like Link. Oh, he's not nearly as bad. He's not nearly as bad. Well, excuse me, princess. I mean, he he pretty much, I'm pretty sure he says yeah, that. Yeah, he's he, like, he excuse does. me, your worshipfulness. He yeah, does, totally. but it's dry and sarcastic and funny. And, and actually, and here's here's a key point. Leia's kind of a bitch. Plus, he well, has that so great is line. Zelda. Which, which Zelda's is the terrible. Greatest line, the greatest line in all of the Star Wars where he tells Leia that there was no time to run it through committee. That's like the best line. Like he's clever. He's, you know, he's a sourpuss. And there's this overall, it turns out, overall Harrison Fordness to the character. Um, it, there's just none of that with this, with this whiny link. Yeah. It's like if Harrison Ford was petulant and like eight years old. Exactly. <laughs> well, and again, it's like the, uh, the Aladdin thing. Cause, cause he had, um, what is it? Apu the monkey? Like, and you saw that other side of him and, and Han Solo had Chewie, so you at least knew that, like, mm. he had this family. Yeah. And then here we have, like, Link has this fairy that is, like, thinks he's hot. And, like, like she's, like, even <laughs> more annoying than he is. And, uh, <laughs> and, and every character. Never, and he's never nice to her. Like, that's <laughs> and, he's the thing. Yeah, and he's mean to her. He's never nice <laughs> and to she's, anyone. Yeah, he's never nice to anyone. That's a good way to put it. Like, oh, you know, well, I don't know the character characters who's always are nice, nice to anyone. But be that's, nice to some true. people, so we can tell who who you care about and what you care about. Well, the King of Hyrule is nice. He's the only character that's not excessively unlikable. Well, except there's this super weird scene where Link's about to, like, sneak into Zelda's bedroom, and then her dad's <laughs> oh. like, right on, dude, here, take some flowers with you. <laughs> oh, yeah, so I just want to say, uh, you, you think that he was, like, heavily influenced by Han Solo. My take was that it was, like, heavily influenced by, like, Ninja Turtles. Like, like they were, it was, like, kind of like... a don't have a cow, like, cowabunga dude mentality that was so off-base from what I imagined Link was based on the first two games. Um, but it, but that was very popular. Like, the Ninja Turtles had come out two years before, so I could see why they were like, oh, we need to give him, like, this, like, sarcasm and detached, you know, coolness. But um, the Ninja Turtles, correct me if, I, if I'm remembering wrong, didn't have that sneering, sniveling quality that... that- you know, they they were they were detached and, and they had you know all of their their one liners uh, a bit. Oh, and that's for sure. In the nineties too. Like, remember Bart Simpson's "Don't Have a Cowman" and all that kind of stuff. Like, it was just it was somehow considered that the bratty boy was was a thing that that we needed um, because we didn't get enough of it in real life. That's fine. <laughs> um, but there's just there's a sneering quality to this portrayal that is just hard to understand. Very well put. All right. So if um, I, I totally agree that, that that links like kick him on, kiss me. What's your problem? Is is a huge issue for the show, and I I, I forget who said it. Like I think Blake, but it would be better if he was just. I mean, I think it would be better if he was just like always kind of hoping Zelda would kiss him. You know, after he um did something great, and then was just constantly disappointed. And and there is this sort of you know this love triangle where um you know sprites in love with Link and Link's in love with Zelda and then she's not in love with him, 
Um, so if if they reconfigured it that way so that he was yeah. just like Pine, no, Aaron, no. I mean, I, I feel like if if you were to have like a usual suspects sort of lineup and you put took all these characters from our childhood shows and said one of them raped someone, I feel like he'd be the most likely. <laughs> like, like I would not be surprised if Cartoon Link raped somebody, and that's like terrible. Like, it is and terrible. Then, and then, like, the misogyny and, like, the sexual assault of it aside, which you can't even really put aside because it's so bad. Just from a story standpoint, it's, like, terrible. Like, I don't even like this guy. <laughs> so, yeah. I, I feel like the show would have been good, maybe, if he wasn't in it. I would have watched the princess try to solve things, and, and the other characters were pretty interesting. I, I don't even think your, your, your refit would work, Dave, because, I mean, this... <sighs> I think you have to be particularly conscious of, of these things when you have a show that that's aimed at that age group. Um, and to having the, the, the setup be that when, when the hero does something good, his treat or reward is sex is just not a good message, you know, or, or romance or whatever. And it's like that, that, and that's basically what this thing link feels entitled to, to, to get in Zelda's pants every time he does a thing. And I don't, I don't know that, you know, however, however hard he creeps on her or passively he creeps on her, the message is the same, which is that, you know, he does something awesome and his reward is the romantic attentions of the princess. Like I could actually, I, I, if, if one of you came up with the, with the Kate, the take that like, that Link was actually the villain on the show. I would, I could go for that. Like, I can see, like, <laughs> uh, you know, Ganon actually wanted to like restore order to this village, and Link, this like guy who was like, uh, you know, they couldn't control him. Like, he needed to be put down. I, I that. <laughs> um, well, let me let me just mention some of my favorite episodes. So, my my favorite episodes are the one where there's the the knight who's like who comes to town and seems so much better than Link, and then Zelda's totally into this this knight who just showed up. I thought that was pretty funny. Um, there's the one with the evil Zelda where she's dressed in like darker clothes. Um, and then the ones where the Moblins get, um, tired of being pushed around by Ganon and they have like a workers revolution. I do love that. That, that stuff's great. Uh, I want to get Zach back in here. So Zach, what do you, did you, did you like any of those episodes? Um, no, not really. (laughs) I, I think uh, my favorite episode might be the water park episode just because it's so weird like the king of hyrule wants to build a water park for some reason um but yeah it's it's hard to watch well while you guys were talking i was thinking like well how how do you adapt this like it's so hard you have like this silent protagonist and it just seems like they they took the silent they, they could have done anything with link if you're gonna make him talk you could write like that's like the thing where you're playing as as this character as Link who who's supposed to be the stand-in for the human that's playing it. You could literally like go anywhere with it, and this is where they chose. Um, yeah, <laughs> yes, I, I, it's exactly. just it's just insane. I was thinking like maybe I would love to see like a Gindy uh, Tartarovsky, the guy who did Samurai Jack, like if he did a take on Zelda. Like where, and you could actually have like a silent protagonist, you know, where that, that doesn't speak and that's only doing heroic things. He did that with, um, fun. hmm? I think silent protagonist would be fun. I think it, it would be harder to sell to kids, um, yeah. but it, but it would be fun. He did a, a show called Primal that's on, um, um, uh, Mac, uh, Netflix or HBO Max or something. And it's like, it's a completely silent show it's just 
try fail cycles of violence in like this kind of brutalistic setting of um with dinosaurs and stuff and i was thinking man that would be cool like link going on adventures and people talking to him but he's like the silent kind of savior guy who comes in and he only does good and that would be cool that's what i, I would want to like see I, I feel like i saw like some rumor that there was going to be a new animated zelda mm-hmm. I'm, I'm looking through my notes uh, i remember i remember hearing that as well I don't know if it's ended up happening or is happening, but, but it's certainly not out. I have to say, I, I don't agree that that Link is a blank slate. Um, he's silent, but it's not like, uh, I don't know, Dragon Age or something where, or any of the, uh, there's a lot of these where you, you have multiple options for how you play the character and, and it's kind of a um, a choice that the, the player makes. Link doesn't say anything, but he does have a lot of moments where you see him react to things, usually in a very cheesy fashion. Um, but generally speaking, he does blush. He blushes. Yeah. He, he looks surprised. He, you know, he has emotional reactions and they all point to a, a fairly bashful hero's hero. Um, which doesn't necessarily mean you have to be bound by that, but I do think that if you're going to depart wholly from it, that there need you know it, it's there needs to be some sort of uh story that goes along with it um you know i think there are definitely like some elements that you could have fun with one of the things that's a bit weird um that i had kind of not thought about until later was much of ocarina of time you play as an adult but you're still a kid um and i think that would have been interesting to kind of play with that idea of having the, the worldview and the experience and the memories of the child, but um, the, the physical abilities and the responsibilities of an adult. I think if you're, if you're doing a kid's show, that could be an interesting take. Hmm. Yeah, like Shazam, <laughs> but in Hyrule. <laughs> <laughs> um, I also just, this is kind of random, but most of these episodes were written by Bob Forward, who's the son of Robert L. Forward, who is um, a, a sort of famous um, science fiction author who's who's well-known as like being the hardest of hard SF writers. Um, I forget. I think he was a, a physicist or something like that. Um, so I don't know. That's kind of interesting. And then I think like um, the credits also mention like an Eve Forward and one other person who I think are his other, you know, Robert L. Forward's other children. I'm not sure of that, but... Uh, so you're saying this is the result of nepotism? Is that what we're getting at here? <laughs> uh, I don't, I don't, yeah, I don't know anything. I, 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 I wish I knew more about how this show came to exist, but I, unfortunately, I don't. But um, you know, I, I would like if they do do another animated thing. I just hope that they would keep the, um, you know, the sound the, the effects, thing, the sound effect, yeah, the, the like video gamey kind of aspects of this, which does set it apart from other, as I said, other kind of like cartoons that that sort of, you know. S- pretty far from the actual um, from the actual game and that that sounds like it wouldn't work but it actually works incredibly well like it, it the sound of it aside from the voice actors speaking their lines is incredible it, it sounds really good yeah and, and whatever you also I mean I like have fun watching this show still and like I would much rather watch like another like 10 episodes of this than watch Assassin's Creed again. I mean, it's like no comparison. <laughs> like, it's just fun. Um, 
but before I get my feelings hurt anymore, why don't we move on <laughs> um, to Castlevania? Uh, so this is a much more recent um, sort of anime style um, animated series. Uh, I only have seen the first season. Um, apparently some people here loved it so much. They went ahead and <laughs> watched all three seasons. Um, so, uh, so Aaron, you said you watched, you've watched all of it now, right? Yeah, I so have. You liked, so you like, so you liked it. I loved it. I thought it was amazing. Um, I think it's improved by and large improves as it goes on. Um, although the wheels fall off somewhat spectacularly at the end, but I'm, we don't need to go to go there. Um, I think, I mean, I was hooked almost straight away. The, the beauty of the animation is just, I, I'm a sucker for, for anime style, generally speaking, when it's well done. Um, and, and this is so well done. The, the, the windows of the village in the winter night just glow. You feel the warmth. There's so much subtlety to the palettes. The foreground is so sharp against the background, so much depth to it. It's just beautiful. Um, that opening sequence, the opening credits, one of the, the, like one of my criticisms of the show is that I don't get to watch that every episode because you only get to watch it for episode one of each season. So you only see it one time. It's beautifully done. Um, it's, it's well acted. It's, it's dark. Um, I just, I really, really liked it. And I, I do think it improves over time. I guess, I mean, everyone listening probably knows this, but in case you don't, we're talking about vampire hunting in the 1400s in Eastern Europe. Um, Blake, what'd you think of Castlevania? Uh, I think Aaron summed up my feelings, although I've only seen the first season, which is four episodes. I I, uh, I, I didn't think I was going to like it going in because I hadn't heard much about it. I don't tend to like anime-style anime shows, but I thought it was fantastic. I thought, and from within a few minutes in, I would also... You know, credit the writing too was just great. Like, so good. Um, there was a like, I, there was a there was a stretch in the second episode which was called Necropolis. Uh, that within two minutes there was like so much good stuff. I wrote down there was a I like the line, the violence wasn't necessary, but it is appreciated. And then <laughs> it's, it, this is from when uh, Trevor, our main protagonist, uh, meets the speakers, and uh, there then one of the speakers is surprised that he was violent. He says, you use violence on them? And then the elder speaker says, the younger people believe that words can speak louder than actions. Uh, he also says, history is a living thing, paper's dead. And there's just great humor in there, too, where, uh, you know, he, the Trevor says he wants something to drink. The, the elder says, bring our friend some water. And he's disappointed and says, never mind, because obviously he so, wants... So, uh, so, so given how much you hated Link in... The Legend of Zelda. <laughs> Did you not have any issues with Trevor's personality in Castlevania? No, I didn't. I not mean, because me. because probably because of the. I mean, maybe what I just found Zelda or Link in in the Zelda show not interesting, and I didn't think he cared about anything, and I didn't think that I, that he. You know, I I never understood what his motivation was. Whereas here, because first of all. I would like to talk about, like, the first episode doesn't even have Trevor in it. The first episode is just a prologue to the story and actually makes you sympathetic to Dracula. <laughs> like, it's very interesting. Um, and so I think that went a long way towards introducing uh, Trevor as someone who you uh, kind of wanted to get to know because you already felt like you were part of that world. But no, I didn't have any of the same any of the issues I had with Link, even if maybe you feel like their personalities are similar. Well, no, not they're not similar, but I Trevor is definitely sort of unlikable. I mean, I, I I didn't 
I didn't mind him too much, but I did find him sort of one note. Like everything he says is kind of dour or sarcastic or uh, apathetic or something. Uh, and I would have liked a little bit more, a little more humor or uh, concern or something. But I, I think he's also, I mean, that that also ties into his backstory. Like I, to me, he comes off as cynical and jaded and it's because his family's legacy has been tarnished by what, you know, we believe is like fake news and lies. And we see that that actually is happening again with the uh, people blaming the wrong uh, groups or individuals for the the horrors that are happening or about to happen. And that, that also just gave it a good backdrop and made it feel modern. Like that here we are 99% of the country or the world, like being involved in wars. And we don't even really know like why they're starting or who's involved. And I, so I saw Trevor as like someone who has experience with that. And, this is how he's chosen to deal with it. Dave, yeah, I I think you're touching on like how how I kind of felt about it. Um I feel like all of the all of the um main characters like the good quote-unquote good guys in this show and this applies to the rest of the seasons too is that um they don't have a backstory. Um Whereas the bad guys have a ton of backstory, there is multiple episodes that go that are flashbacks that go into the the motivation of all the back uh, of why these characters are who they are. But um, like with Trevor and the, and even Alucard, all of that is exposition and it's real time um, in the episode. Um, delivered between dialogue and it's just I don't know it's and it's mumbled like the first season every single character is just <laughs> mumbling their lines um, even though it, I don't know it's I, I under I definitely see where you're coming from Dave because I didn't find any of the characters particularly likable but at the same time I'm with Aaron in that this thing is so beautiful to look at like yeah. and the fight scenes are just the fight scenes are incredible. They're super violent. Um, I love the world too, like the world building. Um, mm-hmm. So it's just like for me, I, I would say pl- plot wise, especially the first season, it's all backstory. I mean, it's all like it's just set up for what's going to happen at the 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 climax of the first season is our main. We we formed a party. Okay, so what? That could have been one episode to the first season, or maybe two. Yeah, I I totally agree with you. The fights that I saw are amazing. In the first season, there's a fight against this this Cyclops monster, and then the fight between Trevor and Alucard is super awesome. Um, And and it's really, really violent. I mean, like, within... I I think it's... Oh, I guess it's... I forget when it is, actually. Maybe it's the beginning of the second episode, but... um, Trevor whips some priest or something and the guy's eyeball flies out. Uh, <laughs> this is not a show for small children. Uh, no, the, the opening seconds are are Lisa walking through a colonnade of heads on spikes. Let me, let me just read you one line from the show that jumped out at me. Uh, there, uh, Trevor's in a um, tavern and one of the sort of rowdy patrons in the tavern says... What am I supposed to do when I find my goat lying on its side in the field, fucked within an inch of its life, and a naked man with blood and straw all over his peck? So, just to give you an idea of the um, adult content 
It does have adult content, but it also has adult themes. And I think the writing is incredibly rich and it touches on some really interesting themes. Um, not to spoil it, but some of the theology discussions that really kick into high gear in the third season are, are interesting. Um, I have to say, I, I totally disagree about backstories. One of my frustrations with the, the second season and the way that they handled villain backstory in general, um, I think there's a role to be there's a role for flashbacks, but I, I find the over-reliance on them a little bit lazy. And I liked that we got a sense of, of who Trevor is and, and why he's as cynical and apathetic as he is right out, right out of the gate through dialogue. And a lot of it, not even his dialogue. I think like having the, you know, uh, drunken patrons in the tavern arguing about how the muckety mucks are ruining it for the little people is, is a smart and elegant way of establishing backstory. Right away, mm-hmm. we understand mm-hmm. where, where Trevor stands in relation to these people, uh, why he is the way he is. We understand his clothing and his demeanor and everything about him. And I think it's a, just a far more elegant way of fleshing out that character. Um, I think, you know, Saifa doesn't really get it, a, a lot of backstory. Um, it's true. Um, Alucard's backstory is implied and that works for me. Um, it, there's a lot of, there's just a lot of emotional depth. There's a lot of sophistication in how they deal with politics and religion. Um, mm-hmm. and I, I just think it's a, it's a big pants show. Well, you, Aaron, you mentioned the theological discussions, which, you know, I don't, I don't know what happens in season two. Cause I, um, you know, I, I stuck to the assignment and didn't read ahead. Like some people. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> I mean, one th- I mean, and I'm, I'm always down. I mean, I, I liked the evil church. I'm always down for like evil religions and evil priests and stuff like that. But I, it did feel to me a little too like hitting one you note. over the head. Um, and especially like even like the most evil like Inquisition or whatever, they're like everyone participating in it isn't just going to be, you know, ostentatiously sinister in their, you know, all of their, uh, you know, speech and actions and everything. And I actually did like how, um, at the end of season one, um, 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 Trevor finds a priest who like seems to be like a legit good guy and is able to create holy water for them. And I kind of wish that like that guy had made some sort of appearance earlier in the, um, season so that it didn't seem so kind of like, like, I, like I, I kind of like felt that, um, the hand of the author, too heavily it seemed to me in the in the presentation of the of religion in the show uh, i don't know if i agree with that i i think i mean personally i, I think that the portrayal of catholicism vis-a-vis witches uh, i don't know that it that there's a lot of subtlety to that um historically speaking i i would have liked them to perhaps lean into that discussion a little bit more and it maybe would have been nice to have um some of the characters I mean, it would be nice to have a character who was one of the faithful because so many people with the overwhelming majority of people in the place that they are would have been. So it's nice to have uh, Saifa from the speakers. It's nice to have, you know, Trevor who hates everybody. Um, but it would have been, it would have been nice to have that voice represented in the discussion. Um, but that being said, uh, you'll see a little bit more sophisticated discussion of religion beyond Catholicism. Um, going forward in the show and a more sophisticated discussion of gender. I mean, for me, like one of the things that really disappointed me and early in the show was you, you kick off the action by burning a woman at the stake. And I'm like, okay, all right. Um, 
I, I'm trying to withhold judgment, but generally speaking, authors do not have your central motivating force being the, you know, for your male character being the something horrible happens to the female and that's the entire motivation for the story. It's a general no-no, but what they did, I mean, that that's in your red column, but it was very quickly a lot of black ink in the other column and they, they show a sophistication in how they treat that going forward that earned the benefit of the doubt that I gave them in episode one. You know, I'm not, I'm not a very religious person, but I don't really like negative portrayals of religion or any organization because it's, it's nuanced. And I, and I thought that it was important that early on and sort of around where Aaron was describing was that, you know, Adrian tells Dracula, you know, not to destroy humanity or all the Catholics, but to go after the people who are responsible. And I think it's a show about responsibility. And I think it asks interesting questions about like, you know, are you responsible if you, do nothing how involved should you be how and like how do things actually get decided and done and and like you were saying earlier like there's it's it often seems to benefit the muckety mucks and the average person is not part of that decision making process though they might bear the brunt of it i would have liked at least in this first season like with the um this inquisition style um force that's the villain for that to have been like just a bit more historically accurate as far as motivation, because a lot of the the burning at the stake, uh, I mean it what it was a really motivated about getting people's land and taking people's things, and that I mean it's just like in this show it's just mustache twirling. I mean it's the same amount of evil, but you could have at least had a more nuanced take than just uh shoot had science, right? I don't know. Yeah, well, no, I, I just feel like in any situation, you're going to have a mix of people with different personalities. And one of the you know, things that's so kind of powerful and so dangerous about religion, in my opinion, is that you can get good people to do really terrible things thinking that they're doing something good. And I, I just, yeah, I just don't buy this. Like, they're all they would all just be arrogant and sinister and glowering and, you and know, some carrying of them would daggers be, and some of them would be people. some of them would be kindly and you know just like sad about this but felt like it was a necessary thing to do or you know what i mean there would just be a mix of personality types in any organization well but you did see that right i mean after when dracula comes home cuz he's been traveling slowly like a human the woman is there um Sort and and she said that she didn't participate or maybe she like she was grieving. So I didn't feel like she was like ah oh, finally we got rid of another witch. Like I felt like she was, you know, the sort of embodied that there was a lot of conflict and uncertainty about what was happening. But again, it wasn't enough to stop the people that were choosing to make those decisions. And I I personally didn't find I, I didn't find the the bishop to be mustache twirly. Um, I found him to be. Uh, just supremely arrogant in his faith and absolutely certain that what he was doing was the work of God and that he was the chosen of God and it was his duty to do it. Um, and he didn't take any particular pleasure in it, but neither did he quail in the face of his duty. And he just stood there and was like, you know, she, she appears to be exhorting Satan not to harm all of us, which I suppose is admirable. Like he just struck me as a completely cold hearted guy who was so convinced of his own special awesomeness in the eyes of God that he was prepared to do whatever. I didn't really see like mustache twir- twirling per se. Yeah. And I guess he wasn't wrong. I mean, he was, his decision of to kill her was wrong, but he was like, Aaron just said, like he, she was studying science and these things that, um, 
he didn't believe people should be studying, and and she seemed to be using it for good. But she was married to Dracula, like like that that was if if that's the evil force in his life, like that was true. This kind of the, the he he reminds me a lot of um the bad guy in Disney's um Hunchback of Notre Dame who has the great Hellfire song. I don't know if anyone saw that, but yeah, no, this, I haven't the, seen it. This show, it, it kind of, cause that's, it's amazing. You gotta, you gotta like just Google, you know, Hunchback of Notre Dame, Hellfire, like whatever. Um, <laughs> but this, this, this show kind of, it's, it, the whole aesthetic of this show seems to me very similar to that, that, you know, animated sequence. So I don't know if there was any influence there, but, uh, I did like, I do like that aesthetic, kind of very Diablo kind of, um, <laughs> aesthetic. Anyway, Dave, just to say, like, I don't disagree with what you're saying about it would have been nice to have this other voice. I think, I guess what I'm saying is, I don't think there was any problem with the voices that we saw. I think the problem was the lack of other voices to, to, to counterbalance it. And that goes back to what I was saying about the ledger. I think y- you can, you can get away with, with a lot in terms of portraying people's, people doing horrible things. Um, and, and where you need to show the, more three-dimensional quality of it, the nuance is perhaps in having other people who approach the same issue differently. And, and that I, I do agree was lacking. As I said, I think it would have been nice to have somebody representing the Catholic voice, whether it be a lay person or, or a member of the clergy that had a different take on these issues. That would have been nice. Yeah. I mean, all, like I said, all I was saying is that the, the one, the, the one sort of good priest that we see in season one, if, if he had just made some sort of appearance earlier on, I think that would have just totally addressed my, you know, mm-hmm. my complaint. Um, Zach, any final thoughts on Castlevania? Yeah, I mean, watch it for the violence. Watch it for the really beautiful um, animation um, and the world building. I think if if you're into anime, this is a top-notch anime. If you like manga, um, if, if you're into, like, ho- kind of like that action-y horror, um, it's... it's it's really good. Um, I just have some issues with the the plotting and the pacing. Um, but yeah. It's... Well, and I, I would even give it a try. Like, I'm not super in love with anime or the anime aesthetic, like the way that these characters are drawn. You know, I wouldn't, um, you know, that might, I might pass this by if I was just like scrolling through things on Netflix or something. But um, I would give this a try, even if you're not that into anime, because it has kind of its own sort of aesthetic to it. Yeah, I agree. If give it a shot even if you aren't because i don't like i'm not into anime either but it is pretty cool to look at and the a lot of the backgrounds are not that like stylized anime um they're like super awesome digital art that someone took a long time drawing they're just so beautiful like it looks really expensive i think that's possibly why um that that first season is just that truncated four episodes is I suspect that it it's clearly a labor of love. And they're like, this is just too much work. If it's not going to fly, let's see if it flies first. There's a library in the second season. That's just like really beautifully rendered. Um, Blake, any final thoughts? I just also want to thank you, Blake, for only watching season one. So, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, you know my credo, only do the bare minimum. So, of course, I, do that. <laughs> I was going to just say, uh, you know, if you ever 
liked and watched uh, Beauty and the Beast and thought, what would happen if Belle cohabitated with the Beast for 20 years and then she was murdered for you know, <laughs> sleeping with the Beast? I want to know what happened next. This show is for you. Because that was kind of how I interpreted yeah, it. Kind it was of very fascinating. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> All right. That, that is, I don't think we're going to be able to top that. So uh, let's move on to um, Pixels and Wreck-It Ralph. I don't, um, we're pretty short on time, so I don't want to go too deep into these movies. But the reason I wanted to talk about them is because unlike a lot of other video game movies, actual video game characters, um, like characters from Street Fighter or Pac-Man or whatever, kind of appear in these two movies. So I just thought it might be interesting to touch on um, touch on that aspect of it. Um, so, uh, so Blake, did you watch... Have you watched, seen both of these or just Wreck-It Ralph? I, I have not seen Pixels. I've only seen okay. Wreck-It Ralph. So maybe Zach, who like championed that movie, should talk. About it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so, so Zach, well, that's why a did, strong why, word. <laughs> why did you make me watch Pixels? Uh, um, well, I no, just, I'm, just, I'm actually kidding. It. I actually ended up actually really liking it. But, um, but Zach, Zach, go ahead. <laughs> I don't, I don't know if you're, if if you're doing a bit or not. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah, I mean, I, I had heard about Pixels. Um, I think it came out like 2015 or 2016, and. Um, the Austin critics here were very harsh on this. It's an Adam Sandler movie. It's Happy Madison. It's all of that uh, usual crew. Um, there's a 1980s, um, I guess, uh, video game tournament, and um, they beam it off NASA like beams it off into space, and then whatever, 30 years or 40 years later the uh there's an alien invasion because they think that these people who won these games is like a you know a a challenge or a war and so these light beings uh uh inhabit the forms of uh you know Pac-Man and um uh all of those kind of retro it it, it was in 82 is when the thing happened uh, the tournament but there are some anachronisms I saw, um, for sure. Uh, but like Galaga, Asteroid, those kinds of things, they're all in this movie. And you have Adam Sandler, um, shooting a light gun in Paris or London. And, um, yeah, I mean, yeah. and Peter Dinklage is in it and he's, um, doing some kind of some multiple accents. I'm not sure. <laughs> um, it's, it, it's a happy Madison movie and I thought I was really going to hate it. And it's a terrible movie, but I I guess my expectations were just so small. Like I, I it, they were. <laughs> I mean, but um, the, there's there's this conceit that Adam Sandler is like this schlub who works for like a a a nerd installation company, and um he, he he's best friends with the president who's <laughs> Kevin James i mean it's just it's infantile how this was this was plotted and who what characters are like i mean but it, once you get past that it's yeah wait wait, 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 wait. Let, let me say cuz i i really really love um happy gilmore i've seen that a million times and then I watched um, The Water Boy, and I watched uh, Mr. Deeds, and maybe one or two other ones. And I was that were just not good at all. And I, I sort of like lost interest in Adam Sandler movies. Um, so I, I never saw this because I heard it was terrible. Um, but I was like, ah, I'll watch it, you know, whatever. And the first like 
20 minutes or so is is actively painful to watch uh it's just painfully unfunny but then this guy shows up who's the um the ufo conspiracy guy and i actually like thought he was pretty funny his though the first line that made me laugh out loud is uh you know, this is and this is like a guy that Adam Sandler hasn't seen since they were kids. And this guy tells him, The CIA has been tapping my phones ever since I found out that Zabruder film has been edited. JFK shot first. And I uh <laughs> I'm I hear I don't hear any laughter, but um That's so I only because at- I was on mute. I was laughing so hard. <laughs> <laughs> and then like pretty I was pretty much laughing like the rest of the movie. I mean it's like you know, like I mean Zach's saying it's it's not like amazing or anything, but I actually thought it was pretty funny. And seeing all the video game characters, um, you know, was fun. And they have like I assume it's actually the um inventor of Pac-Man. Uh no, that it, that was an actor. Oh, was it? I, okay. I I yeah, I was like, could this be? Could this really be this person? And I looked it up and it's it's but just was, <laughs> I don't know. That was just funny to me. And and like, you know, um, and then Peter Dinklage is like, I don't know if you guys have seen um, the documentary King of Kong. Is that what it's called? The, yeah, that's exactly who he's playing. The he, King of Kong guy. Yeah. The, Billy Mitchell. Billy, he's, he's 100% Billy Mitchell. Like he has this kind of like mullet yeah. and goatee and, um, and he cheats at video games. And it's like, you know, <laughs> like so obviously that that's what they're like riffing I'm on. surprised Billy Mitchell didn't sue. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I mean, Blake, you must know all about King of Kong and Billy Mitchell and all that stuff. Or? Yeah, and I would say that I think even Billy Mitchell is a more likable protagonist than Link in Zelda. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, to me, especially at the time, because King of Kong was popular back then, like it seemed very obvious that he was based on Billy Mitchell. I don't know if that's illegal to base that <laughs> off of, but that was definitely my take. Yeah. Well, and if so, if you haven't seen um, King of Kong, you should totally watch it. It's one of the best documentaries I've ever seen. And then there's another one called Chasing Ghosts, which is not as good, but it's about sort of the same group of characters. And it's these, you know, these guys who are like the best um, players at Pac-Man and asteroids and everything in whatever it was, 1982. And they were, um, you know, featured on in the centerfold of Life magazine. And they all they had like money and endorsements and groupies and cars and all this stuff. And they all thought that they were, you know, set for life. And then literally like two years later, nobody cared about arcade games anymore. And it's sort of like about how this has shaped their whole lives, you know, for the last 40 years, whatever. Billy Mitchell is so like unlikable and like so villainous that I struggle to believe that that's a accurate representation of him and that that wasn't like acted or like, or he's being a heel. Is that, is that true? I think that he actually is like that, but I think also, I mean, a lot of that film is like, uh, uh, fabricate is not the right word, but what I don't even think Billy Mitchell held the high score during, but they made it seem like there was a rivalry between Steve Weeby and Billy Mitchell. Um, but yeah, I'm sure that Billy Mitchell watches that and doesn't think it's accurate. I don't. I don't think he's totally wrong to feel that way. But he did make for a good villain in the movie. Yeah, I mean it's it's amazing storytelling, but it that's what it doesn't feel authentic. It's just it's so good. Like someone can't be that shitty in real life, right? Like <laughs> it has to be. You being can't really think there. that. Yeah. There's well, no limit. I mean, after seeing <laughs> our current president, but still, I mean. Yeah. 
I'll also just say about Wreck-It Ralph that I think it's interesting. Well, I guess about Pixels and Wreck-It Ralph is that sort of the same characters kind of show up in both. So it's obvious like Pac-Man, um, Donkey Kong. I mean, Wreck-It Ralph is basically Donkey Kong and Qbert like have some sort of like staying power or some sort of, you know, hold on people's imaginations. Um, or the rights are cheap. I think the rights are cheap and and that people there's no Nintendo characters in that in that whole movie and I I don't think that's a coincidence. Wait, which movie? Wreck It Ralph. I don't remember seeing any Nintendo characters. Uh, They mentioned Mario. Is he in it? I don't remember that. Okay, so I'm wrong. Um, but I do uh, wonder if oh, if ba- it's well, Bowser's like, in the Bowser's in the like villain. That's support, true. Yeah. Bowser is in the in the bad group. Okay, so I'm full of shit. Never mind. I <laughs> know, uh, Blake. Do you know anything about the legalities of get, getting these characters into uh, Wreck It Ralph or Pixels? I th- I think it was. Uh, I don't know about Pixels. I think I'm pretty sure with Wreck It Ralph it was by choice, and like I don't think it was they just scraped the bottom of the barrel. And I think that's a large part of what sold the movie. Like what sold the story in the movie to me, and especially what sold it is like you know, the trailer or what may be interested was just that villain support group. Cause it, it showed like, this was a world that has these characters from different games. So it's like a cohesive world that actually has these characters. And like, you know, like we we're talking about with the episode we both liked for Legend of Zelda, like, you know, sort of the minion revolt, like sort of seeing like, Oh, let's see this from the perspective of the characters who are historically the bad guys and how they might feel having to play a bad guy. Cause maybe they're, maybe they're not so bad. Um, so I love that scene, and I and I believe that those were the characters that they wanted in the movie, not just the you know bargain bin characters. <laughs> I feel like Qbert is definitely a bargain bin character, <laughs> <Agreed>. especially with <laughs> what they did with him in Pixels. Like that shit just got really weird at the end. <laughs> they, they they turn him into a a woman, and then a character marries them that person. It's really yeah, weird. You, yeah, no, you gotta you gotta see it. It does. It's not gonna make sense out of context. But um, yeah. in the poster for Wreck It Ralph, Sonic is in it. I don't remember seeing him in the movie. Maybe I have. Maybe he like like shoots off into the distance or something. No, he's um, there. He's he's, he's on in the, it. He's on the Grand Central Station, the Game Central Station billboard. Um, he's like an automated uh, um, PSA, basically. He's like, uh, if you leave oh, your game, just... you'll get killed. That's right. 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 So right. He's, Okay, so he's just in that in that. Um, okay, and uh, and the and Doctor Doctor Robotnik is also in the bad guys group. I noticed. Um, actually, that reminds me, Blake. Did you 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 mentioned that there was the Sonic um, cartoon? Did you ever get a chance to to look into that? Uh, thanks for putting me on the spot here. No, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, but yeah, so so Blake because I did a little research because Blake mentioned it. So there have been a bunch of Sonic cartoons. Uh, Sonic the Hedgehog from 93, The Adventures of Sonic the Hedgehog also from 93, strangely enough, uh, Sonic Underground from 99, and Sonic Book. Is that a typo, or is that, it was actually called Sonic, I don't know. Sonic Boom, no, Sonic Boom. Sonic, Sonic Boom was Boom, good. Was, I liked it. <laughs> that yeah, there That's where they gave Sonic the scarf, and that was a big controversy. <laughs> I really want the the more literary Sonic. Um, but, uh, yes. Okay, Sonic yeah. Boom from 2014. Um, yeah, so, so I don't know if anyone's curious, if you never, if you always wanted a Sonic cartoon, you never realized that those are out there. Maybe go look into those. Um, but so, yes. So what do we feel? I mean, I guess the last thing I wanted to touch on was how do we feel about, you know, like last time we talked about all these live action movies that are pretty much all terrible. 
And this time we talked about uh, Assassin's Creed and Street Fighter, which are pretty terrible. And then, um, you know, some of these anime, like Wreck-It Ralph and um, Castlevania, we all seem to think were, were quite good that are animated. So are we feeling like uh, video game characters should should just stick with animation or uh, should, should we keep trying to make uh, make live action happen? I mean, I personally don't think that there's, I think it's a, it's a coincidence. I think Wreck-It Ralph is, is a great movie. I think it's a great example of what Pixar does well. Um, and one of the things that Pixar does well is write well. <laughs> Honestly, I, to me, it, it's kind of that simple. I, you know, I think you could have achieved, um, I mean, it's difficult to, you, you couldn't have made Wreck-It Ralph and have it not animated simply because of the type of story that they're telling, because so many of the characters that they're portraying, including in cameos, we all know as animated characters. Um, but I, I don't see any reason, for example, why Castlevania had to be animated, um, other than it's expensive. Um, I think you could have achieved a lot. I mean, you'd have to have a big budget, of course, to CGI the monsters and stuff. I think it just comes down to good writing. Um, and I, I don't know why, but... I think it's a broader trend personally. I think it's a broader trend than just video game movies. I think a lot of the best movies that have come out in the last few years, no small proportion of those in relation to the overall number that they make up of movies, no small proportion of those are, are better than live action movies. I think there's just a lot, there's just a lot of dreck in live action and there's maybe less dreck as a proportion of the overall oeuvre, if I can use that word, <laughs> um, in terms of animated movies. And I don't know why that is. It's maybe, maybe is there less to hide behind? I don't know. Um, I, I would, th- I would think it's like a cooks in the kitchen situation because the team maybe. doing the animation, even though I'm sure it's, you know, dozens of people's, it's still, the vision is stronger than, you know, a studio exec coming in saying, oh, you know, I don't think Trevor's likable, or can we have him, like, laugh here? Like, I, I feel like it, there's, it, there is more of an auteur vibe to uh, these animated shows, which, and is for it, better or worse, I, I certainly like. Is it maybe, like, just sort of kind of jumping onto that, is it maybe that, because, you know, I, I think the number of writers is probably not that different, but is it maybe more of a passion project for the people involved, and is it maybe that there's more scrutiny applied by, you know, the various gatekeepers along the way? Like, do you, t- to make it to the screen as an animated movie, do you start with uh, um, enough of a credibility deficit? Is, is that the way I want to put it? Is it harder to get an animated movie to screen um, than a live action movie? It's a question mark. I know nothing about the business, but that, I mean, I know that that's responsible for some of the things that we see in, for example, books. Um, and why certain genres are, um, the quality is maybe higher as a overall proportion is simply because it's just so much harder to get those made that the ones that do get made, it's a bit Darwinian. I actually feel like for Castlevania, it was probably a special circumstance where part of the reason it's as singular and artistic as it is, is because they were able to do four episodes, a sort of four episode miniseries as a proof of concept. Right. Whereas right. that would be a lot harder to do with live action because, you know, you have to get the actors together to film all the episodes, then get them back and everything. Um, so that might be part of it, too. But Zach, uh, Zach, go ahead. Oh, well, I was just going to say that um, with the movies, not with the Netflix stuff, but with the movies, th- those are all Disney. So um, I think that Disney has a ton of resources and 
I think that's why those animated movies tend to be good. And Wreck-It Ralph, you know, is not an exception to that. Yeah, but there's lots of bad Disney movies. <laughs> lots of bad Disney. And, and, and if, correct me if I'm wrong, do, does anyone remember when Disney bought Pixar? Because it seems to me that some of my favorite Pixar movies predate Disney. But I, I, Well, this is, this is Disney Disney. This isn't Pixar. This, I think this was before they purchased. So it came out in 2012. No, no it was way, after the purchase. But it, but it wasn't okay. a Pixar movie. It wasn't. It's a Pixar not. Movie. It's not Brad Bird or it's not the the normal Pixar people. But yeah. it's plotted yeah. just like a Pixar movie. And it's so it's like some Pixar of the movie. Pixar people are like executive producers and stuff like that. Oh, okay. I mean, you definitely see it in the aesthetic too, and just I mean, yeah. the, the the overall conceit. It's basically Toy Story, right? I mean, just the jumping off point. Of course, it's not. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, it's like what your toys get up to when you're not there, kind of kind of story. <laughs> Uh, I also saw that there's a, a Devil May Cry series coming from the same producer as Castlevania. And there's apparently a, a Last of Us TV show in the works from HBO. Um, so just maybe keep an eye out for those. Um, but yeah, we're, we're pretty much out of time here. So any other, uh, any other projects anyone's heard of or any final thoughts or, or anything? Uh, so Blake, any final thoughts here at the end? Uh, I, I guess the ultimate test is should you play the game or should you watch the movie or show? And uh, Wreck-It Ralph, I would say watch the movie, don't play Fix-It Felix. Uh, Street Fighter, <laughs> I, I would rather watch the movie. Uh, Castlevania, I love the games, but I thought the show was fantastic, so I'd rather watch that. And then, uh, what was the first one we did? Cause the, the Legend of Zelda. Don't forget yeah. the Legend of Zelda. Yeah, that was play the game. <laughs> play the game over and over and don't ever watch the show. Uh, Aaron, final thought. Um, my final thought is that if you're considering a video game movie, I would say, um, don't necessarily, um, assume that the video game is going to inform the movie. Um, and if, if you're really precious about the fact that it's going to do that, I mean, I, I also kind of feel like, um, maybe if you really, really are passionate about the game, which I certainly am, for example, for Legend of Zelda, it's going to be very hard for, I guess that's true of any adaption excuse me, adaptation, um, is that if, if you're really precious about the source material, you're maybe going to cast a bit of shade on the very idea of adapting it into something else um, and, and be um, a bit skeptical about it. So maybe that's part of it too. Um, but I guess what I'm, what I'm trying to say is games that should make good movies don't necessarily, and games that don't necessarily uh, look like they could... Ne- turn into coherent movies can be handled well. So there doesn't seem to be any straightforward relationship between this is a very cinematic game and this is a good movie. Um, and if anything, it, there seems to be an inverse relationship there thus far. I actually saw the creators of the Zelda games say that they had made a conscious decision not to have we, uh, not to have Link speak because they felt like he had been silent for so long that there would be no way to have him speak that wouldn't alienate a huge segment of the uh, audience, no matter what they did. So, yeah, yeah maybe speaks to how hard it would be to, to do a, a TV show, too. But, um, okay, so, uh, Zach, final thought. Uh, watch Street Fighter. It's really fun. <laughs> it's awesome. It's terrible, but... And that's... Uh, and watch Castlevania. Um. But yeah, I think everyone rap. It's a good rap there. Yeah, and everyone watched the Legend of Zelda cartoon 
It's great. Ooh. I think we're all pretty much in agreement with that. For so sure. we're going to uh, wrap things up there. So we've been speaking with Aaron Lindsay, Zach Chapman, and Blake J. Harris. So thanks, everyone, so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you very much. And from Qbert. <laughs> and that was our panel. So big thanks again to Aaron Lindsay, Zach Chapman, and Blake J. Harris for joining us on the show. And remember that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoyed the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkertley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.